Welcome to the Aging Gracefully Podcast. I'm Janae Anderson. And I'm Mary Thompson. Join us as we explore the myths, beliefs, and realities of aging to empower each of us to thrive on all levels every moment of our lives. Hi, this is Mary Thompson. Today's podcast is going to focus on brain health, especially emotional brain health. How our emotions can impact our brain longevity and how our negative emotions can cause our brain to age faster than we would really like it to. So when we think about emotions, I remember a time I was teaching elementary school and I got a phone call from my father-in-law and he asked me a question that has stuck with me for a long time. He said, tell me the biggest laugh you had today. What a fun question. Yes. And I didn't have one. I didn't have a laugh because I was really highly stressed in that job. I didn't find my life to be fun on any level. And here was this question. I said, I didn't laugh today. And he said, well, you got to fix that. And I just kind of blew it off as my father-in-law being my father-in-law. But I think now looking back at it, it was a really profound question. And it, and it really, I should have been more alarmed by my answer. I think so. Because when we're stressed, we're driving ourselves, we're aging faster. We're actually robbing our brain of nutrition because we're going on fight or flight mode. In our last podcast, we talked about the mental aspects of the brain, the physical amygdala and where we want to be working from is out from the relaxed areas out or further away from the center of the brain. When we're under stress, we tend to just isolate and we get into those basic emotional responses. I'm going to respond with fear, with anger, with sadness. I never quite get to the joy that comes from operating from a different part of my brain. Yeah, you're in survival mode. Right. And that fight or flight. And for me, it was always flight. It was, what's the door out of here? But I felt like when I was teaching, there was no door out of there. That was something I had chosen to do. And I was there, you're locked into a contract and it was really debilitating. Right, not a happy place. Not a happy place for me at all. Now I'm in a much different place because now I choose the work that I want to do and I enjoy what I'm doing. But I really look at the emotional health is going to be, yeah, we all have stress. We have stressful situations arise. But how do we process it? How do we move beyond that stress so it's not continuing to inform me every single day? And what research is showing is that these stressful events, these places where we haven't processed our emotions, can actually creep back into the life in the forms of dementia. Wow. There's a woman, Naomi Field, who wrote a book called Validation Breakthrough about how to speak to people who have Alzheimer's dementia. And in her research, she found that people went back and revisited stressful events that they hadn't been able to process fully. Whether it was uh, something that happened in their childhood or in their marriages or in their life at any time. So in their dementia, they would go back and revisit those. Right, those stressful times. And I thought about this in light of my mother's own dementia. And she um, she was always prepping for a holiday. But holidays for her were incredibly stressful times. There was, We came from that typical dysfunctional family where someone was going to yell at somebody, some fight was going to occur. So there was always a tension around holidays. I don't want to say we didn't love each other. We just didn't quite know how to get through that stress of the holiday. And it was very hard on my mother. 
But what I found she did in dementia was she was always preparing for a holiday. Like she would ask me, oh, are you coming for Easter? She's going to, and here it is July, you know, yes, I'll be there for Easter, certainly. And, or she would wake up at three in the morning and she'd begin to set the table for 20 people using the good china and the good crystal and everything because there was always a holiday coming. So caught perpetually in this stressful state. Right, because these were the most stressful times for her with her family. But she was recreating them in dementia Ugh. with never really being able to fulfill whatever expectation there was at that time. So when we look at emotions for brain health. The biggest lesson that we come across time and again is don't stuff them. You know, allow yourself to experience the emotions that you have and process them in a healthy way. Maybe we aren't sure quite how to do that. And that might involve getting reaching out for some kind of help to say, I want to make sure that I've gotten on the other side of these events. One of the things I came across in my research that stunned me was that 73% of Alzheimer's sufferers had had stressful events in their history. Some of the big ticket stressful events, and you'll find these on the alzheimers.org site. So things like being expelled or suspended from school, occupational challenges like being fired, being sent away from your home in childhood, having a partner cheat, a number of different conditions that, you know, maybe you've experienced. Any kind of negative situation, negative event that generates a lot of stress, where you feel there's been this traumatic event that has impacted you. Now, as I look through the list, I think we'd be hard pressed to find anyone who hadn't experienced at least one of these. You know, that we have, we've all had stuff come up. What the difference though is for someone who goes into going to develop dementia and someone who doesn't is how they process the emotions that these kind of stressful events generated. That makes sense. Um, I, I saw Byron Katie speak once, and a woman went up to talk to her and talked about how she, used, she was abused as a child, and she was locked into a closet and left there for long periods of time. And uh, Katie said to her, how many times would you say that happened to you when you were a child? And she said, I don't know, maybe 20? And Katie said, and how many times have you relived that as an adult? And, you know, virtually every day. Right. So it's like, do we let it go or do we take it with us and physiologically experience mm -hmm. it over and over again? Right. Or the, t the things where if, if you want to wonder, if you're wondering, do I have some of these in my own history? Think of those events from your childhood or your earlier adulthood, anytime that you still feel pain around, you still feel angry about, you still feel sad about. We should be able to look back at our past with dispassion to a certain extent. I can look at the loss of a family member, say the death of a parent is listed here as a very stressful event. But I was, I was pretty much an adult by the time a parent had died. And I can look at that event and I can appreciate the sadness and the grief, but I also feel like I processed it at the time. I didn't prevent myself from feeling it. Yeah. Or, I know Eckhart Tolle talks about how there's no need to go back and go over traumatic events. You know, if they're still up for you, they will show up in the present moment. And uh, when they do come up, what do you do with them, Mary? What's, what's the healthy thing? Well, I'm not sure if it's the healthy thing. I'll tell you what I do with them. Okay. So when I have emotions come up, I'm often, I this really annoys my partner, but I will 
pull, pull back and I stop and I think, when have I felt this before? What was going on when I felt this before? Because for me, I'm very rarely upset about what's happening in the present moment. But when I'm feeling upset, then I have to think, has something like this happened before that I didn't process it in a healthy way? So now I might pull back and I go back and I revisit and I think, when did this happen before? And then I come back to the, to the table and I say, I'm feeling whatever I'm feeling. I'm feeling angry about what just happened. It reminds me of this event and it's bringing up the same emotions for me. And what I'm asking for is I want to resolve this in a way I want. Maybe I'm going to ask for something to happen differently. Maybe I just need for the person to accept and understand. Yeah, sometimes you just need to be heard. Right. So if I have a situation where I have said to a person, I'm feeling angry about this and what I'm asking is whatever, and they respond with they don't care, now I have a decision to make. You know, do I, is that the kind of person I want to continue to engage with? Now, fortunately, the people I've brought this up to have typically been people who cared enough about my feelings to say, oh, I didn't intend for you to feel angry about this. I was trying to do this. And we have a conversation and we come to a meeting of the minds. So for me, a big part of processing emotions healthfully is simply acknowledging that they exist and not placing them onto someone else. So what I mean by that is, say I got mad at Janae for something. I can't think of what Janae would do that would make me <laughs> angry at her. But if I came to her and said, you made me so mad and you have to change and you're wrong and you're bad, then that's harming the relationship. I want to own it. I'm feeling angry about what just happened. That does, she's, you know, she can own. I didn't mean to make you angry. I was just taking care of myself over here. Now we can have a dialogue. Yeah, whereas when you come to me as the victim and as blaming with that pointed finger, mm -hmm. you know, which I was pointing my finger, she was. <laughs> then all I want to, all I feel is defensive, and I want right. to lash back at you. Right, and then you're going to say, "Well, you did this and you did that." Whereas when I own it, when I use my I statements, I feel fill in the blank. Then she knows she's not responsible for it. I'm owning it. It's my feeling. And she can say, well, I didn't mean for that to happen. Or, good, you should feel angry. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I can feel compassion and I can mm -hmm. search myself for where I went wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of thing. So it's a whole right. different dynamic. Right. One challenge I think we have as people in our age group is we were often told that our emotions were bad, mm -hmm. that we were wrong. You're not feeling sad about that. Oh, you're not scared. You're not angry. And there was a disconnect that went on. At least there was in my childhood because I was, I was left kind of wondering, oh, well, I thought I was feeling sad, but you say I'm not feeling sad, so I wonder what this is that I'm feeling. And then I would be confused. And I went through a lot of my life really confused about my emotions. I think a lot of us do. Right. And I think this is the kind of thing that ages the brain because there's a disconnect where we say, I don't, I'm not in control. I'm not in power. I don't, I don't know. I don't acknowledge. And so I'm going to stuff it. You might all know people like that that put a smile on their face, but you know, under the surface, there's something going on. And then you say, hey, is everything okay? And they say, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. That I'm fine is detrimental to your health. Right. So that actually uh, does something to the brain. It does. Mm -hmm. It causes a chemical reaction in the brain and the brain starts to react. So it's really just owning. You know, maybe I used to have to do this a lot because I didn't know what I was feeling Somebody'd say, "Are you all right?" or "How? What are you feeling?" And I'd say, "I'm not sure, but it doesn't feel good." 
You know, it's like, I'd, I'd have to just go from that. And then I'd spend a lot, long time thinking, and this sounds, I, as I say it out loud, I go, oh my gosh, I must sound just crazy, is I'd have to think, is this sadness? Does this feel like sadness? Wow. Is this fear? Does this feel like fear? I was that disconnected from an emotional response. Now I feel like I'm pretty well in tune. I still have a hard time maybe confronting someone with what I'm feeling because I still kind of believe they're creating it. You know, that it, you looked at me funny and that's why I feel this way. But the more we can process these emotions, according to Naomi Fields' research, is the better we are able to navigate the world and the less these traumatic histories, these situations that we've had in our past, the less they're going to loom in our future. I have one friend that's still very angry about something that happened when she was in junior high. And she still talks about it, even though she's approaching 60. You know, this is still up for her. She's still angry. And even though the people involved have apologized, even though she's moved beyond it, we continue to hear the story Mm -hmm. that goes on. And I can't help but think that if she does end up going into dementia, this is the story that she's going to recreate in talking to people about, you know, again and again. We certainly do cling to our stories. Oh my gosh. And boy, can they make us miserable. Yes. So one thing we can do is, is acknowledge what we're feeling when we're feeling it. or And that could be even just to ourselves. It doesn't have to be talking to the person. Journaling can be a really great tool where you simply get a chance to say, I still feel angry that my parents divorced. I'm a 60-year-old woman and I can still feel angry that my parents divorced when I was 15. You know, I, I, I'll probably talk about this um, more in more depth in the spiritual part of brain health, but one of my practices is in meditation, if feelings are coming up, to allow them and to honor them, like to give them a nod of recognition mm-hmm. or to kind of internally give that hurting part of myself a hug and then allow it to go. And there's something so powerful about just acknowledging and right. honoring whatever arises. Right, because there's nothing wrong in our emotional life. There's nothing wrong in what we're feeling. What could be wrong is if we choose to react in a way that's harmful to ourselves or others. Sure. So if I'm feeling afraid, there's nothing wrong with me feeling afraid unless it causes me to hurt myself or someone else. And so stepping into that wound a little bit, if I feel a place in my past that, oh, I don't want to go there, it's just too painful, maybe journaling, what am I feeling around it? You know, what would I say to someone else who had gone through this similar event? Because I know there's a lot of work done on our, on our pain and how we tend to lead with it. You know, we tend to label ourselves. I'm a person who survived this event. And so we recreate it every day. You know, when we, when I, um, I, I co-found, I co-lead course of, a course of love groups. And um, the very first one I facilitated there was an alcoholic who had been in recovery for 20 years. And every time he spoke, he started with how he was an alcoholic and how when he was a young kid, his parents abused him and they were both alcoholics. And and so we heard the same story over and over and over. And I just wondered if as the course went on, if he would lose his story. I never said a word to him, but lo and behold, um, many months later, we stopped hearing the story and he started identifying himself differently. Yeah. And it's not that the story doesn't still exist. It's not like he buried the story because we don't really want to bury the past. What we want to do is to feel resolution with it. 
yeah, maybe we don't need to constantly feed it. Right. Or we might be able to, and I not everybody has to do this, but we might be able to look at it and see, can we look at it from a different angle? Can we look at it through someone else's perspective? There's a wonderful movie called Rashomon that's a Japanese movie. It's told in four parts. And it's a couple is on the road and a bandit comes and steals something from them, as I recall it. And they tell the story first from the woman's perspective and then from the man's perspective and then from the robber's perspective. And the fourth is the truth of what happened. That sounds amazing. It's, it's got this, it's, I remember seeing it when I was in my teens, you know, it was really impactful. I still think about it today, but I wonder if we could do that same thing when I have an, an issue. Can I look at it? I have my perspective, but can I pause a minute and look at it from somebody else's perspective, maybe from the, um, the outsider who's not really engaged in it? Or in the case of a childhood trauma, can I look at it from the parent's perspective? You know, I often hear stories from people who were abused as children and that when they've resolved it, they will often acknowledge that their parent was a flawed person, that their parent had issues, and that it didn't have to do with them being good or bad. It had to do with their parents' issues. So when we look at emotional health for brain health, it's simply allowing ourselves to be emotional beings and loving ourselves despite that. Conditions like anxiety and depression actually impair brain function. Yes. We move into that distinct fight or flight section of the brain, and then we're just operating on autopilot. It's survival mode. It is. Yeah. And, and as um, the amygdala, the fight or flight part, gets fed, it can be more active. You know, parts mm-hmm. of our brain can grow and shrink depending on their usage. Right. And so if that's the part of my brain I'm using, it's the part I'm looking for. I think of myself walking into situations and I would typically go to flight, right? I've got, a, I've got much more fear coming up and anxiety. And I would walk into rooms and I would think, oh my gosh, what's, what's there for me to be afraid of here? Because I would project the fear into the room. And of course, if that's what I'm looking for, that's what I found. And I drew relationships to myself that would validate my fears. They were scary relationships. So we can begin to look at our own history and maybe step into that cognitive part of the brain. Love ourselves despite the stressful history events that we've had. And I think just... So I experienced abuse as a child and have done a lot of resolving of it. I mean, I would say I'm at the place where it's fully resolved. And yet, (laughs) two nights ago, I had a dream of a young child being pulled along in a truck by her father recklessly, you know, like dragging her on the ground and she'd get lifted in the air. She was crying and crying for help. And when I woke up, I just cried because I felt for this little girl and I felt a part of me that was the little girl. And just, I said to my husband, who I woke up, <laughs> that the, the effects of childhood trauma are so entrenched. Oh, boy, aren't and they? And when they show up, you know, just it's, it's easy to not want to go there. Right. To go, oh, you know, I resolved that. It's a, uh, I'm done, right? Yeah. But to just allow it to come up again. Oh, here it is again. Allow it to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we can't really resolve childhood issues that come up. What I always would tell one of my brothers is, I'd say the person you're angry at is not alive anymore. You know, it's not, and it wasn't just that my mother had passed because she was probably 80 at the time. The mother we were angry at was the 40-year-old. 
This woman had 40 more years of life experience and she would have approached things very differently. And so even though the parent says, I'm sorry, it's not the parent you need to have apologized. The parent you need to apologize isn't there anymore. So all we can do is kind of access it on our own. Another aspect of emotional health, to move away from this deep end of the topic into the lighter, to the less deep side of the pool, (laughs) is the things that have been shown to increase brain longevity are social interaction and social engagement. So coming in and being around other people, we have communities that are individual people in individual houses. And I remember my mother was in a mobile home community and it was, I counseled her like she was me as an adolescent because she was saying how she didn't have any friends and there was no one for her to hang out with. And I would say, no, it's good. They all like you. <laughs> and I, I just had these flashbacks to my mother talking to me in junior high. But, you know, each of these individual people were in houses very close to each other, but they were all in their own homes believing that there was no engagement to be had. But when they stepped out, there was, there was engagement. That was one of the, th- the things we discovered with the Blue Zones, mm-hmm. was uh, that social engagement was a huge part of keeping people healthy as they grew older. Right. And if you don't have a social group, you can look at volunteerism, joining groups or clubs. I think you mentioned this in the mental health portion of it, was looking for someone who's doing things you like to do. Yeah. Um, I do have a teenage son, and we were talking about making friends, and I came across this article that had a two-step process to making friends. And the first step was do awesome things. Do the things you want to do. The second step was invite others to join you. Nice. It was just so clear. that was do something you get joy out of and then invite someone else to come. And maybe that first person's going to say, no, they're not interested. But eventually you're going to find someone who thinks that your awesome thing is their awesome thing too. Yeah, or find someone who's already doing your awesome thing. <laughs> That's right. It's a little bit harder to invite yourself along, but it's, but it <laughs> is doable. It is. Um, group classes. We mentioned this with uh, both the physical aspect and mental aspect, but looking at the gyms um, or looking at your recreation. Uh, there's outreach from community colleges. So you can strengthen your brain, learning something you want to learn, and you're around other people. And that's what really allows us to develop our emotional sensitivities and to feel more connected. A screen does not take the place of actual interpersonal relationships. Right. What the research was finding, like people who engage on Facebook would think that they are engaging with friends, but they're not really stretching themselves. They're not having a two-sided conversation because of the algorithm that Facebook uses. You're going to get mostly people who think like you will show up on your feed. But when you go out in the groups, you get a chance to stretch those emotional barriers and say, oh, look at this. This person disagrees with me, and I have the opportunity to dislike what they're saying and like who they are. Yes. And it makes you think. Your neurons must be firing on that Mm -hmm. level, too. So we can engage with people. Now, maybe we can't get out so much, but we could phone. We can have email interactions. We can get to know our neighbors. This is a hard one for me. This is a hard one for me because I, I don't know. It's where my fear steps in, right? Nobody wants to know me. My insecurities come up. I can't believe you feel insecure about that. Oh, yes, I totally do. They're very different from me. In my perspective, you know, I project that onto them. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're all just like me. I am my mother in the mobile home. (laughs) (laughs) Because um, maybe you do have friends. Meeting up regularly with friends, family members. Make a date. Make a date. And 
speaking for the women, did you know that when women have a conversation that's uh, 20 minutes or more, they produce oxytocin, which is a very relaxing hormone? Not only that, but it creates the bond. So it's a bonding hormone. So if I create that oxytocin in a 20-minute conversation with you, I'm more likely to feel connected to you and to want to connect with you again. That's a good point. Yeah, because oxytocin is the breastfeeding hormone. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. The nurturing. Yes. The nurturing hormone. And even just going out, but trying to find a way that you go out and engage with people. I have plenty of times I'll go out and not talk to anybody, you know, and so it's like that doesn't really count as social interaction. But for emotional health, we want to reach our hand out and, you know, stretch a little bit emotionally to I, let people in. I remember when I moved to a big city, um, I was pretty much alone there for a while. I hadn't made friends and sometimes I would feel real lonely and depressed. And just to cheer myself up, I would go to the local um, Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. And I would watch the employees and other people who ran into each other hugging and talking and just being around them, even though I wasn't actually engaged in that, I'd walk out feeling so much better. Nice. <laughs> see, it's, I think a bit of it, like what I see here from that is I want to change my perspective. You know, I want to look at things and say, oh, look, I could be like that as opposed to me saying, oh, look, I'm not like that right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I could actually kind of feel the positivity flying around. It's Lovely. I like that. It made a difference. And the last thing is like, watch out for your emotions. If you're feeling anxious or depressed, talk to someone. That reach out to a friend, reach out to a professional. That we don't have to wallow in that. We but, can take steps out of it. And the tendency of anxiety and depression is to isolate. Right. So to be able to turn that around and make that phone call or seek the help that you need mm -hmm. uh, in spite of what those emotions might lead you to feel you wanted to do. Right. I recently heard Jim Carrey giving an interview and he talked about depression and he was saying, you know, depression is real. But if you're not eating well, if you're not sleeping well, if you're not getting out and talking to people, if you're not exercising, you're not even giving yourself a fighting chance. So it was like, even though I feel these emotions, can I still value myself enough that I take care of myself physically, mentally? I love that. And it just, is. you know, not, not to make depression any worse, but just to know that when we're depressed, our brain is reacting by not um, not thriving, not firing off neurons, not uh, birthing new brain cells. Right. So look after your brain by looking after yourself. So as we consider this aging gracefully, we want to resolve our emotional issues, allow ourselves to accept the things that have happened to us, learn the lessons, and let them go. Yeah. This is Mary Thompson and Janae Anderson signing, signing off. off. Thanks for listening to the Aging Gracefully podcast. Subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest episodes at aginggracefullypodcast.com. And while you're there, leave us a comment or a question. We welcome your voice in the conversation.